Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology with me, Tiasha Zaitz. Some say fax machines still exist because of healthcare. Across the world, paper is still heavily used in the industry. In the UK, the NHS is on the course to eliminate paper prescribing in hospitals and introduce digital prescribing across the entire NHS by 2024. Since 2018 until the end of 2020, 216 NHS trusts have received funding to implement systems for electronic prescriptions and medicines administration. IT implementations are difficult and can take several months to complete in healthcare. Clinicians need to use several systems, learn about updates of these systems, which presents a huge burden. So if the introduction is not done well, hospitals can run into resistance by the users. Sometimes digitalization requires more time for documenting patient care. Therefore, clinicians can be disappointed that most digital solutions at the moment aren't high-tech decision support systems that would take away the cognitive load from clinicians. Digital systems still require clinicians to basically not expect the system to think instead of them. In this discussion, you will hear from Duncan Cripps, Electronic Prescribing and Medication Management Lead at the University Hospital Plymouth NHS Trust. Duncan, who is a pharmacist by background and also a teacher at the University of Plymouth, outlined the current state of electronic prescribing in the UK and talked about the challenges he sees in electronic prescribing in hospitals. One of the key things he looks forward to is the increase of interoperability between primary, secondary and tertiary care systems. This has the potential to bring a single source of truth about the patient to the physician. Consequently, transcription errors can be completely eliminated, which will significantly improve patient care. Enjoy the discussion and to browse through other episodes as well, go to www.facesofdigitalhealth.com. This interview was part of the discussions for the movie Overdose, How Can We Prevent Medication Errors? If you haven't seen the movie yet, find the link in the show notes. You can also listen and see full interviews with other speakers from the documentary as well. Duncan, hi. You're a prescriber or pharmacist involved in electronic prescribing at the Plymouth University Hospitals NHS Trust in the UK. So your role is a little bit different from the classical clinical pharmacist. You're actually involved in the whole rollout of electronic prescribing throughout the the hospital. Um, let's start with a kind of introductory question about how do you see the role of digitalization um, in the whole medication management process and your observation of the medication-related patient safety 
from the past to today? Sure. I'll come straight from a conversation, actually, with the lead for our acute pain service, talking about how we've introduced systematization of prescribing for high-risk medicines post-operatively. We've introduced a whole range of orders within electronic prescribing to, to try to standardize prescribing so we get good quality of patient care, but also to improve patient safety. A lot of these medications are opioids or other high-risk medicines. And by using technology, we can make sure that the prescriptions for those are correct and safe and clear. Also, we can monitor those and report on those far easier than we could do um, with a paper system. So that's an example of how things are starting to transform for us, having adopted an electronic prescribing solution. Just one thing, since you mentioned order sets, can we just briefly explain what order sets actually are and how much do they help prescribers? Is this something that is prepared by pharmacists so the, the, the doctors can rely on those prescriptions without having to think on their own uh, what they want to prescribe to a specific patient? So just uh, like a brief explanation of how they are helpful to prescribers. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So an order set is a means of creating a, an almost complete prescription rather than a prescriber having to decide they want to pick a drug and then decide on what dose route, frequency they want, and any other additional information they might need to go into that prescription, they can make a request for a standard prescription, which within our managing the electronic prescribing solution, we can then create that as a complete prescription. And it then means that a prescriber can select that whole data set with one click and then prescribe that for the patient. So we take out the, the risk of the misselecting the incorrect dose or frequency. Okay, thank you. I interrupted you there in the middle of the explaining um, what patient safety related to medication means to you. And maybe I just want to add more, one more thing to this question. It's quite hard to really assess what is the number of deaths or long-term consequences that are caused by medication related harm. Though there was a relatively recent research in BMJ quality and safety that kind of estimates that medication-related errors still result in 1,700 deaths. So I just wonder how do you see the development around medication safety? Is it improving? Is it staying the same because of various new factors that are coming in the care and increasing number of medications uh, that are available? Certainly the transfer to medicines for prescribing and administration takes away some of the, the long-standing risks around eligibility of prescriptions, around the need to transcribe from, from one prescription to another, and it makes the prescriptions more accessible, easier to review, easier to look at in a, in a like a, what's the word I'm thinking of, the, the kind of big data approach. So we can look both actively and retrospectively at prescribing to try to identify areas where we can improve. So that's definitely a big improvement. That said, technology does bring it, so we, we're seeing perhaps some different errors, largely around a lack of familiarity with process. So we've changed what we were doing before. There were perhaps some consequences of that that we hadn't foreseen. I think that, so for instance, with a, a paper prescription chart, you can see at a glance up to 10 days history of medication admissions uh, and prescriptions. Whereas depending on how you have your default user interface for an electronic prescribing system, you may only see one day or three days. And there may be key information that was easily visible in the paper format 
that would influence how you would behave either prescribing wise or administration wise that you don't see in the electronic system and that can then potentially lead to, to, to problems with themselves. I think another aspect where perhaps there are new errors introduced is where things like there is an over-reliance or an over-expectation on what clinical decision support can offer. There's a, an expectation among some users that the system will stop them making them. And this is something that we have to very emphatically try to get across to, to new users in training, that they cannot afford to devolve responsibility for patient safety to the system. They are still ultimately responsible as the prescriber or the person administering. And how is that working out? How does the training of people to be able to really be mindful that the machine doesn't know everything, how does that work out in practice? Because on, on one hand, there's this huge hopes how AI is going to solve so many things. And I have an impression that we're now slowly going in the second phase of healthcare IT development, where if now we know what's not really working in healthcare IT, solutions such as indication-based prescribing or solutions such as giving recommendations for prescribing based on data in the electronic healthcare record are coming to the market. And when a system is incorporating a lot of data, it's getting increasingly harder for the prescriber to really think of everything that the machine is thinking on. To a certain extent, it's understandable that at a certain point, the prescriber just relies on the system. So how do you bridge the gap between pushing away the, the responsibility and making the system useful for the user? I mean, from a training perspective, it's really quite difficult the a lot of the end users see training as a, a necessary um, means to an end so they just need to get through it so they can start using the system uh, and not all some of the more subtle points that you're trying to get across necessarily persist when they finish that training session so some of it is around continual reinforcement rather than initial training but certainly something that i'm quite keen to, to make sure that we don't lose sight of is the fact that practice is messy, uh, and this is something that's certainly come up a number of times where we've been looking at some of the limitations of, of a digital solution. The way the system is going to handle those situations is dependent on the data, the information that you, that you give it in the first instance. And sometimes life is just a bit too complicated. There, there are definite advantages from systematizing where we can. But it's important not to lose that kind of that hue, both the, the contact in terms of the, the patient and the wider team. But also Douglas Schoen talks about technical rationality versus professional artistry when talking about professionalism. So technical artistry is like going through um, a set of standard processes to get to an end point. So by following those processes, you will get to the end point correctly. But it doesn't allow for the messiness of human life, healthcare. Things don't always follow in the order that you think they're going to follow. There are some unforeseen interactions with the, the process. Um, and that's where the human being, I think, is still, still required. And that's, that comes through experience. So the, the experience and the ability to apply learning from one setting, one context to another context, being able to see similarities that you wouldn't necessarily be able to do from a digital solution initially, I think is, is still key. And that's one of the messages that I'm still keen to get across to, to users is that they have to still think as a professional and not to try to devolve any of that, that responsibility to the system. You're actually also an educator. So you teach a future medical student from the, of the younger generation. That's right. Yeah. Or digitally savvy. How do you think that 
either the training for them is changing or the mindset of how they are using the technologies when they reach clinical practice. There's certainly a, a hunger for it. We've just started piloting some, some use of our, our, our prescribing solution with our final year medical students. They're seeing it used in the clinical workplace uh, on their placements, but are currently not able to use it in that environment. So we've now had the, the, the benefit of, of being able to use that in a, a classroom-based um, teaching session. Um, and they love it. And they also seem to pick it up extremely quickly. They do seem quite intuitive users. And one of the, the, the things that's quite fascinating is looking at how they, the kinds of data that they access online in, whilst they're trying to, to make prescribing decisions. They're very astute at how they're using uh, IT and their search skills. So if, yes, it is quite a contrast to perhaps some of the, the more experienced clinicians that we've worked with who are I think quite quite intimidated or frustrated or scared by still by technology, certainly when it comes to prescribing where they've had maybe 20, 30 years experience of always writing on paper. But I think as, as you're possibly implying, the sort of ubiquitousness of technology now in all aspects of life means that our up-and-coming medics, pharmacists, nurses are all a lot more comfortable with the idea of technology being part of what they do on a day-to-day -day basis. Often also quite disappointed if they end up in the clinical practice and just see that they uh, need to do so many things the old ways or by hand. And yeah, I guess bureaucracy is something that is frustrating many people. So... I don't know, it's you recently yeah. to publish uh, a link to, to an article that was explaining how uh, daunting it can be for medical professionals when technology doesn't work. And I think that's especially interesting in the medication management space when you can't have completely automated systems with you need those robots basically bringing uh, the medications uh, from the pharmacy but it's, yeah, maybe the, that robot then doesn't open up or there's passwords and all sorts of challenges. I don't know, like to which extent do you see that issues are present? Are they more uh, of an exception? From our experience locally, we've perhaps still, quite a, still got quite a way to go on that kind of journey. But what I'm very mindful of is, is just trying to make sure that those end users are involved in the decision making rather than strategic decisions being made without the actual people that will be using the systems having a say and maybe enabling us to, to, to deliver a better implementation because we're seeing the system from the user's point of view rather than just trying to get it done and move on to the next thing. And if we look at the, the broader picture of medication-related patient safety, based on your experiences in the clinical practice and implementing technologies in a hospital setting, where do you see that most progress needs to be made, speaking generally. Do you mean in terms of where we are with, the, with uh, digital currently? I, I, so I don't want to put words in your mouth and I'm going to respond with a few thoughts after your response. But uh, like if you were just asked about communication-related patients okay. and how can we improve it, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Okay, so, so for me, continuity. So the interoperability of primary and secondary care systems. So the fact that we've got primary care that have been using digital for decades and hospital to a greater or lesser extent is still relatively new to the game. The fact that there's even with the, some of the more advanced systems, the ability to share data across environments is incredibly limited and it's a massive barrier to care. 
one of the big wins about introducing a digital solution is to try to minimise the need for transcription. So from one paper document to another. But until we've got really good integration systems created between separate digital systems, that transcription process is still required. So we're still relying on a human being having to translate one data set into another data set. And yet the information is exactly the same between the two systems. It's just that there's no means of communicating directly. Yeah, I can now offer some of the thoughts that came to, to mind or were mentioned by other speakers. Yeah, transcribing errors if you're working on paper are definitely a huge issue and eligibility. But then one thought that was interesting to me was when a clinical pharmacist from the U.S. said that obviously polypharmacy is a challenge. People taking five or more medications, when you come to the number five, there's probably something that's not going to work in favor to the patient in terms of either how he's feeling or there's going to be another interaction. And the challenge is not, it is that the patient is taking many medications, but it's also that he's visiting multiple specialists and no doctor is going to change a prescription for another doctor. So that's where the clinical pharmacists uh, can come in to optimize that, that just all the prescriptions. So maybe a thought uh, from you there, what are your experiences in terms of changing prescriptions and how do you do all the involved specialists get uh, a message about the changes for a specific patient? So when the patient goes from the hospital to the home setting, his medications are not changed again to the state before the clinical pharmacist optimized the situation. That's certainly the kind of thing that we're wanting to try to establish, uh, and I think we're making some inroads to that already. There is that need for, for someone to be in the pilot seat for that patient. So rather than just focusing on specific aspects of care, different parts of maybe a, a plane are responding, someone has to look at the big picture. And whether that is the, the general practitioner, a clinical pharmacist, that I guess that role is yet to be defined or that it may change from setting to setting. I think there are some clinical specialties, certainly in secondary care, that are better and, and braver and perhaps more experienced at this concept of deprescribing or medicines optimal. We see it particularly with our healthcare of the elderly physicians, where polypharmacy is obviously most prevalent. And I think because deprescribing is part of their day job, they're a lot more confident in making those changes than if the patient came under, say, another medical specialty um, or a surgical specialty, for instance. We are also trying to establish better links with community pharmacy so that the messages that perhaps we're trying to get across to patients or the slight refinements that we're trying to make as pharmacists gets reinforced in the community and changes are followed. So rather than having to have an outpatient appointment, say, or a GP appointment that the community pharmacy is going to be in contact with that patient on a regular basis anyway to, uh, to supply their medication can actually follow up and, and make sure that we're not getting outcomes that perhaps we weren't expecting. For a broader understanding, because the audience of the podcast is global and it's interesting to compare how things work in different countries, can you um, explain a little bit how, to which extent are clinical pharmacists involved in managing or checking prescriptions in the hospital and to which extent in the community? Are Clinical pharmacists are also available to GPs. Is there an established relationship that, I don't know, pharmacists in the pharmacy are in contact with the doctors to make maybe some consultations if they feel that a prescription is not uh, accurate or appropriate for a physician? So just the general state in the UK. 
okay, pharmacist integration with clinical teams, there are some geographical variations, but it's been certainly a, a, a part of clinical pharmacy since I've been in practice. That's quite a long time. But with primary care, we're now seeing certainly a, a, a big input of clinical pharmacists into GP surgeries, both looking at the individual patient care, but also looking at their sort of their their practice population as a global population uh, and trying to influence prescribing and patient safety in that respect. And there are now better ties with those pharmacists that are working in community, they're sort of dispensing pharmacies in the community sector. So there, there is a role to be had by pharmacists in all sectors now, I think, in, in the UK in optimising medicine's use for patients and maximising patient safety. Can you think of an example of a medical error that you saw in your clinical practice? I remember when I was a, a junior pharmacist or yeah, relatively junior pharmacist, we had a patient who had been admitted uh, to hospital, had a diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis, was started on weekly methotrex, was discharged to the community. The GP wrote a prescription for daily methotrexate. Community pharmacy dispensed that prescription. The patient took it for about a week and came back into hospital with essentially bone marrow failure and in spite of trying to use various rescue therapies and supportive therapies the patient actually died so yeah there are i've seen some Mm -hmm. very serious medication errors in the past the patient reacted to the medication it was a prescribing error so there was a a failure to to identify the correct frequency of prescribing for the methotrexate so it it is a very potentially very toxic therapy um but it's a, a gold standard in a lot of autoimmune conditions because it's so effective, but it's crucial that the patient only takes the, the medication on a weekly basis. And I think in a lot of prescribing, the default, prescribers will often go into kind of like an autopilot mode and people tend to think about medications being given once a day, twice a day, rather than once a week. And we still see that even though the, the NHS uh, has taken a number of steps to try to minimise the risk of that since I, I uh, saw that patient. It's almost impossible to, to completely eradicate the risk of that error. In, and that's even with having clinical decision support systems highlighting alerts to, to prescribers. When it comes to alerts, I'm hoping just from the patient safety perspective that new systems are going to be better at that. There are, as I mentioned before, I feel that we are now entering in kind of the, the second age or century of these decision support systems where a prescriber is not going to get um, 1,000 alerts and then ignore them all, but really get more specific and, and useful alerts. Because it's based on the example that you mentioned, it's quite hard to imagine that a thing like that can't happen today, even if with digital systems. Exactly. And we've had, we've seen a, a patient bring in a prescription for the same medication that had been generated on a GP system, which would have almost certainly have had numerous alerts, but the patient was still prescribed uh, a daily dose of methotrexate, which had they taken would almost inevitably have been fatal. So, um, yeah, I, th- I think because, uh, and you don't want to necessarily put hard stops into systems because you need to have, again, that, that kind of the human ability to cope with the messiness yeah, there are always exceptions to the rules. And so it's important to enable 
that that kind of individualization of care but at the same time there is a there's potentially a tendency to to not pay that much attention to alerts and to just try to get through the work as quickly as possible one of the the speakers for the documentary he mentioned that he sees that patients could be safely checked in the full medication or just procedure pathway but they would need to be a little bit more knowledgeable and empowered about the fact that they do have a voice and that they can perhaps infect their whole treatment, which does not mean that they should know as much as doctors. That's impossible, but just to make them more engaged in their treatment. So I don't know, sure. how do you think that is changing? Is it changing? I think it is. From my teaching with the students, I'm always very keen to emphasize the importance of concordance when they're talking to patients about medicines. So rather than that kind of paternalistic, this is what you need to take and it's important that you take it and, you know, I'll see you next time. But to give them the facts, to give them the information about what the risks and benefits are, to have a discussion with them about what impacts that might have on them and, and to allow them to be part of that decision. And that's not just in around, around starting medication, but also changing existing medication and being involved in decisions about stopping medication. So we, there's, there was a, a study, and I can't remember the authors now, but there was, it was a qualitative study looking into patients' thoughts about deprescribing, which we spoke about earlier. And there's, you can still see some patients feel that doctor knows best and therefore they're quite happy to passively allow doctors to make decisions. But there are others that, that absolutely want to understand what, why is it you're changing that? Because if it was right before, why is it wrong now? I think that culturally people are starting to want to ask more questions. I guess people are a bit more consumer savvy anyway in a digital age. And I think that extends to healthcare. But I also, I, I think that's why that's the human contact part of healthcare is still so important that the role of a healthcare professional as a communicator is still absolutely critical to, to put things in terms that a patient can understand, but also try to empathise with the position that the patient's in. Going back to another aspect though around the importance of, in, in terms of patient involvement with safety, there's the, the importance. So when we uh, um, admit patients with, that use insulin at home, we know that if they manage their own insulin at home, they're far like, more likely to be safe in hospital if we continue to allow them to do so in hospital. It's when we take that um, uh, sort of self-actualization away from the patient that things that the errors start to be made. So we get incorrect prescriptions, we get incorrect administrations of insulin, the insulin's given at the wrong time. And then we get more episodes of hyper or hypoglycemia. So this is something that the National Patient Safety Agency, as was now NHS Improvement, is very keen to try to reinforce that we should empower patients who manage their own insulin at home to continue to do so long as it's safe, so long as they are well enough whilst they're in hospital, because they do know better frequently what uh, suits them rather than clinical staff that you know have no real background knowledge of the patient. On the one hand, you want to have everything under control, a clear picture of what the patient is taking. But is that even possible if a patient is taking 20 medications at home and then he's supposed to take those 20 medications um, on his own in the hospital and is potentially given by the nurse a few additional medications for the acute problem that he's hospitalized for? Can you have an actual ac uh, accurate picture of what the patient is actually getting? It's really tricky. Uh, I don't think there's currently an easy solution. We, we need to get to a point where technology will help us to deliver that. But 
say, for instance, patients with cystic fibrosis, they manage their medication at home frequently and a significant part of their life is taken up by managing medicines or medications, some of which they need to take with every meal. Sometimes they're on insulin. Frequently they have nebulized medications. Sometimes they have IV medications. So they're very experienced in managing their own medication at home and it can be quite difficult to hand that responsibility over to nursing staff when they come into hospital. Although maybe sometimes they may feel so unwell that actually they would prefer to do that. I guess you also have to question what do you gain by devolving that responsibility to a a member of nursing staff. You can only control medication um, administration while the patient is in that acute setting. Okay, yes, so you may have an acutely unwell person and you need to try to, to keep things as controlled as possible. But that patient only spends a very small portion of their life in hospital and, and what they take at home it doesn't, isn't necessarily reflected in what you're going to see in a, a medication record in a hospital admission. I guess in some ways the, the accuracy of that in some settings in hospital is perhaps, perhaps maybe overstated because it doesn't reflect what goes on in real life when the, the, the patient's at home. Clearly, if a patient is, is critically acutely unwell we need to try to keep things as stable as possible but i I have mixed feelings about how vigorously we should chase the the accuracy of that administration record clearly we want to try to cut down the the numbers of of administration errors you spoke about the vast number of medication errors that we see in the nhs and a lot of those are administration rather than prescribing errors we want to try to 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 minimize those but at the same time We've also got to, to by, by disempowering patients, because we want to make sure we know exactly what's being taken, we, we, I think we, we perhaps give ourselves a full sense of security about what's going to happen when the patient goes home. What comes to mind when thinking about the future? What are you looking forward to in terms of improvements that can be made? Going back to what we were saying earlier, being able to manage that tension between the, the likes of clinical decision support and AI flagging up issues, being able to manage that with um, still individualising that around patient care. So I guess that my my hope is that we can pick up on uh, on the potential for errors, but not necessarily take away the decision making from the, from the individual. There's also the notion that culture around safety is very important when it comes to looking at medication safety in the hospital setting. So to which extent do you see that that is one of the main factors that has a lot of room for improvement in yep. hospitals, speaking generally again? Definitely. I've had a little bit of involvement in some human factors, team resource management type training, and the the importance of being open to problems being highlighted. So you know, trying to avoid hierarchy, bit, uh, enabling people to speak up, trying to learn from the more frequent no harm or low harm incidents rather than relying on just the, the really serious ones. These are all still culturally difficult things to get across to prescribers. The incident reporting is still very much seen as, I think by some individuals at least, as something you do when you either have an actual disaster or you uh, a near disaster. You miss a trick by relying on that. We do talk a lot about no blame culture. I think still think that people have some hang-ups about that as an idea, but certainly look at it from an electronic prescribing lead, it's much more useful to be able to have instances that flagged up as incident reports where no harm happened to the patient. That's very powerful and we're not looking to try to, to then apportion blame to individuals. It, it is about trying to, to improve systems. But also within the NHS, there is a, a push to try to, to talk about safety too. So this is 
rather than focusing always on errors, to also focus on what's good and learning from when things go well uh, and making sure that those kinds of practices are reinforced rather than always looking at just the negatives. Because most of the time, things do go. And so it's important to, to learn the lessons of that rather than just focusing on when things go wrong. All uh, errors are uh, problematic in a sense that they cause pushing harm, as mentioned uh, before, three out of four um, errors are basically not either fatal or have long-term consequences. But it's still because you're talking about human life, so any uh, serious harm is just so much more horrifying. I guess is one of the words that you could use. Yeah, we definitely want to minimize the the errors as much as possible. Yeah, and but I, and it's getting that message across that actually, if we want to be able to do that, then we need to to use as much learning opportunity as we can. And a lot of that arises from those no home, no harm or low harm incidents. If if we could learn the lessons from from far more of those, then more of the serious harm incidents wouldn't happen in the first place because we would have hopefully modified systems uh, and practices to 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 reduce the kind of, uh, of risk associated you've been listening to faces of digital health to browse through other episodes as well go to www.facesofdigitalhealth.com this podcast is a proud member of the health podcast network So if you're interested in other perspectives on healthcare as well, go to thehealthpodcastnetwork.com and browse through various shows prepared by creators from across the globe.